Welcome to the Living in the Future podcast, where we bring to light specialized topics from life in the modern age. This episode, I'll be talking to two people about their projects to digitize out-of-copyright works and make them more accessible. One project dealing with music, and another with books. Today, I'm talking with Aaron Dunn, the marketing lead of MuseOpen.org, a nonprofit site that intends to provide zero-cost and public domain resources for and recordings of classical music. Aaron, why is it important to provide public domain recordings, and how do they differ from zero-cost resources? That's a great question. Um, When I started this project, uh, it was actually due to confusion about uh, copyright laws, um, which may indicate, which may answer your question about the importance. Uh, I was a young student in college, and I saw a CD at an FBI warning. Uh, It was a CD of a Mozart piano concerto. And it said copyright, uh, something like copying this or reproducing it will result in, you know, breaking federal laws. And like Mozart's been dead hundreds of years. How could this still possibly be uh, under copyright? Uh, and then I, I quickly learned, well, the original um, published music, the sheet music is public domain, but the recordings aren't, which made me think, well, what's the use of public domain law if nothing will ever ultimately be in the public domain? So that was the kind of the inception of someone ought to start something. Uh, without a commercial intent so that stuff that belongs in the public domain or has fallen into it ultimately uh, can exist there. So the value in my mind is uh, is a couple things. One is to act as um, kind of a platform or let's say something to spark the imagination of creators. I mean, today we, we call things remixes, uh, which is ironic because frequently many of those use copywritten material and could be taken down at any moment but it shows the value that people place on being able to take an idea, play with it, and uh, create something new. So one is just having a resource where they can do that and not be afraid of the consequences. Another is to ensure access to things uh, and and ensuring that there isn't an indefinite cost to having access to uh, some really amazing uh, cultural achievements, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and the whole classical musical genre. and uh, finally, I, I also thought this as a personal fan of classical music could be a great way to introduce people casually that might be intimidated by it or think of it as being this old stuffy art form that it's actually super rich and very accessible. And one way to do that, especially for younger people, is just make it free and put it online. So that, that was kind of the inception behind this. We could wait for the 78s to become in the public domain with all these recordings, but when you recorded on the Kickstarter, you did at a much higher quality recording with an orchestra in Europe. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that Kickstarter experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the The first Kickstarter that we did was actually when the Kickstarter platform itself launched. So we saw this as a great way uh, to be one of the first on a new platform, um, trying something with a really web savvy uh, group of, of potential backers. So the first uh, project was basically let's hire uh, a super well-known, well-regarded orchestra to do something they've never done, which is to give away all the rights to the music, uh, but for a a good cause. Usually they do this for movies or video games. Uh, We wanted to do it just for the benefit of the public. Um, And it was an interesting experience, both connecting with people and raising money, many of whom had no interest in classical music and uh, which surprised us because that's what they're giving money for. 
um, as well as the groups, which at first we talked to some very big names that were very interested and then got cold feet and said, uh, we don't want our name associ associated with this um, because their business model is, is selling access to music. They don't want to set a precedent for losing royalties. Um, so we got a bunch of high profile musicians with our own name, the Muse Open Symphony Orchestra, uh, and we're pretty happy with the res end result. I mean, it's available at archive.org as well as your museopen.org site. I know you were just featured in a Google Doodle for Smetna's birthday. Uh, right. I think it was a clip from the Moldau. Um, are, uh, can you talk about that and about any other uh, high-profile uses you've had? Yeah, um, that was pretty straightforward. Google asked uh, for a license and... Um, uh, asked to use the music for their doodle to celebrate his, I think it was 250th birthday or something like that. It was a beautiful animation for those that haven't seen it. You should check it out on the Google Doodle um, homepage. And it was just a, a great example of, of the ways that you can use this music uh, that if they had gone with a commercial licensing, it would have, uh, it could have taken weeks or months and would have cost a fortune and the music ought to be in the public domain. Uh, the sheet music has fallen into it. So it was a great example. Uh, I've seen a lot of Use cases, some I discover later, um, everything from TV commercials, uh, independent films, video games, waiting room music. Um, I heard something in the U.S. Senate, so, someone uses this as waiting room music, which is pretty amazing. Um, a, a lot of uh, the, the things I see the most are, are probably independent films and video games. It's probably the most frequent. And you've just launched a classical music app as well that does cl uh, a live stream of classical music, uh, a radio app. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So we, we started this. You mentioned uh, LPs. Um, it, it's an interesting kind of uh, uh, question for the organization. We, we began with we want to increase access uh, to public domain music and classical music. But ironically, over to time itself, we'll do that. Uh, barring any copyright law changes where the U.S. makes it indefinite, you know, it, it'll be after my lifetime, but all CDs, all LPs, this will all become public domain. It'll just take hundreds of years. So one benefit of our organization is we speed up that process a little bit. Um, another benefit is we might get higher quality recordings earlier, as you mentioned. But one of the things we're thinking is what else can we do with the music that we have and what other kinds of benefits can we bring to people? Um, so one way is leveraging the uh, archive that we've created. So uh, for example, the classical radio app, why have people pay for, or in addition to what they pay for, why not have something that's really easy that broadens exposure and makes it more fun? And we've also lately looked a lot at music education is, is probably something that we're gonna be investing very heavily in in the next few years. Uh, so like a music theory textbook or a music, uh, even an appreciation textbook, something like that? Yeah, exactly. We, we actually started as part of a Kickstarter. We raised some of the money we raised was for a music theory textbook, which we've written. And ironically, uh, music professors we've reached out to, many of whom helped contribute and write the book, don't have a strong incentive to spend hours and hours changing their syllabus, checking the book. Um, they're heavily incentivized to use the existing texts that they have and the systems that they have in place. So we didn't see a lot of bang for the buck there. Uh, and actually, when we think about access, that's a very niche application, music theory in particular. It's very academic. It's higher education, like college level usually. So the kinds of stuff we're looking at is, is much more fundamental. Uh, I want to learn to play the piano. I want to learn about classical music, or I want to learn to write music. 
how do we how do we help people do that for free so that they eventually can discover it, fall in love with it, and then go from there. Have you followed the Muse Score project at all? And what are your thoughts on that? We have. Uh, I've been in touch with a lot of similar projects. Muse Score, IMSLP. From time to time, they'll they'll pass inquiries from people that wrote to the wrong project, confusing them. Uh, what they do is great. Um, I, I believe they have a commercial entity as well. I'm not clear what what either one focuses on. I, I guess it's trying to monetize the the app. Um, but they're increasing access for people to be able to share and create music, which is great, and reducing the barriers for people using notation software. Um, we had played around with that as well, hoping to do something web-based because I think that will ultimately be the future. People shouldn't have to download an EXE file to do this. Um, I think we'd have to raise a lot of money to do that really well, but hopefully someone in the future will will create that. What do you think of the idea of even having these scores in a digital format and then having the the like a MIDI sequencer uh, play them as a way of distributing the information? That way, when you scan the sheet music, you also or when you digitize the sheet music you also get a sample of what it sounds like as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, we worked with the uh, Goldberg Variations project, another Kickstarter, and uh, worked with them to help promote their project and make and uh, see that they get funded. As part of their project, they digitize the Goldberg Variations. It's also something that we've looked at ourselves. We've hired people to go and digitize scores to see what the cost would be per page per piece of music. Um, we had a vision where any piece of music you look up on MuseOpen, if you're learning it, you could skip to a section, hear it played, um, and for just archival purposes, uh, it's really a question of cost. It, it would be a massive undertaking. Um, it would require either a, a significant number of crowdsourcers. Uh, there are copyright, potential copyright issues where um, if, the, if what you create looks like a modern edition that has some changes, that could run into issues. Um, sure. But ultimately, I think we just saw this as like, what's the, what's the cost versus benefit? If you have a PDF and the quality is good enough, then the application for what you've described is really very niche. If, if we already can get the recording by hiring a musician, I'd much rather do that. We're giving money now to uh, some struggling or young performers helping their profiles um, rather than just paying someone somewhere to kind of mechanical Turk crowdsource, uh, digitize them and have a MIDI play it. So it's great. I would love to do it if if we had recurring revenue that justified it. I would invest some amount every year, but currently that it, that's not feasible. Sure. Uh, actually, I guess that brings me to my next question, which is how do you add uh, new music to the site? And how frequently do you do it? And if you could uh, give people an idea of how much music is on the site already. It's a good question. I actually haven't checked that in a while. Um, we, we have both sheet music and music recordings. Uh, mu sheet music is actually much more popular by two to one on our site um, and has been for some time. When we had music recordings, we started marrying the two um, to, do, to try and accomplish the kind of thing that you were describing where um, you could follow along a score and listen to it. Um, I would say we have anywhere between five or 10,000 recordings, individual recording files. Um, and we, we obtain it through a number of, of different ways um, and most of them actually are just donations uh, from amazing musicians, young and some professional. Some have uh, gotten on labels and had to stop contributing because their profiles 
not not because Muse Open just separately uh, uh, increased so much, which is amazing. But so we have some very amazing artists that have contributed. We also do Kickstarters, and we also, as we have funding, uh, we'll just hire individuals to record things that people have requested or that we think are particularly uh, going to be particularly valuable to contribute. Are there any recordings that particularly stand out? There are a couple that I like a lot. Um, we have a set of the Goldberg Variations, which I really like. We have, I think, all the Beethoven Piano Sonatas, which is a huge undertaking and completely donated uh, by an individual. So that was amazing, uh, and it's a great set. We paid to record all of the Chopin music, all the solo piano Chopin music, which is also has some real gems. Like, like any recordings, depending on how elitists or snobby, you can say they're garbage, you can say they're amazing. I think to your average listener, uh, a lot of what we have is, is quite good and would be hard to dis, uh, distinguish from a commercial recording. But so, those are some of the ones that stand out to me. Now, some of the, some of the recordings on your site are only uh, Creative Commons, no, no commercial. Mm -hmm. What percentage uh, would you say that is on the site? Yeah, uh, that's definitely a minority. We, we started accepting that because we would have artists that, uh, as I mentioned, some would be on labels and would want to contribute or change the attribution or uh, a lot of people that just want to contribute but aren't comfortable with a kind of endless, completely free, really what we started to do, which is a pure public domain CC0 attribution. And so uh, I, I determined that the value of having something that people can use and enjoy for free outweighed the cost of not being able to potentially resell it. But I would say that that's probably 5 to 10% of the library, maybe at times 15%. Are there any recordings you're particularly looking towards or maybe music that you're looking forward to getting in the public domain with uh, things entering the public domain now? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. We've definitely followed that very closely. Um, there's some orchestral work that I would like to do, but that's a few years off. Um, I mentioned actually in a radio program a couple years ago that we we love the Lark Ascending from Vaughn Williams. I think that's still a ways away from being able to record that. In the nearer term, I think there's some George Gershwin that we could potentially record. I think some of that has started to fall in the public domain. So that would be pretty cool. Um, I'd have to look. We, we do keep tabs on that, and there's probably some interesting opportunities to align, maybe a future Kickstarter to something like that. And, but separately, oh, I, I would say I want to diversify the instrumentation a little bit. So we have a lot that's piano. We have some that's orchestral. I'd like to, in the near term, try and get more guitar, string, uh, violin kinds of music. Uh, one thing that I noticed, I, I went looking for it when I, I was just curious if you had any, was uh, uh, like medieval choral work or something like that, which I think would be interesting for people to listen mm -hmm. to. Uh, has anybody approached you about that? Uh, we do We do have some choral work. I, th I think some of it, I don't know if it's medieval, it may be Baroque. We do have some choral work. Most of that is just what's donated uh, from, from those musicians. Um, so we haven't sought after that, just generally because it's less popular. Um, sure. But one of the things we did think a benefit of Muse Open, at least hypothetically, is that we could record things that don't have commercial incentives to record. So if you think about J.S. Bach, he had five or ten brothers that were also very talented, 
and many people have never heard or recorded a lot of their works. So that's something that in theory, MuseOpen could do a project just to record things that haven't been recorded before. So that's a good example of the kinds of stuff that we could think about. That's that's very interesting. What starts you uh, making a Kickstarter? How frequently do you run them? Do you feel there's demand in the market? Or is it time? Or That's a good question. Uh, I, I, I base them. So they're every few years now. We, we're quite a ways away from the last one. I, I it must be something like between three and five years, something like that, which is much further than we'd like it to be. Um, but I try and base it on, does the value of the idea or the idea itself warrant asking people for a lot of money? Um, and I think the first two that we did did, one was just to even prove the concept of hiring one of the best orchestras, a top five orchestra in the world, which is pretty unique. Uh, the second is, to record the life's work or try to record the life's work of, of a single composer and give it away for free, which I think we ended up like four pieces away from. And in time, I'd like to just record those. So that was also pretty amazing. So I would want something equally uh, as valuable to the public. So we're actually thinking about running one uh, in the vein of education, which I, I mentioned earlier. Um, if we felt that we had something that could adequately enable someone to learn an instrument completely on their own for free. Uh, and, and we think it would be worthy of asking people for money to help build, then we, we would certainly consider that. Do you, do you see uptake in, in like elementary schools that, that uh, don't have necessarily budgets for textbooks and stuff like that? Yes, definitely. Um, the, the education, piece, there's, there's probably two, two facets. One is the consumer self-learner, which is usually someone older, could be high school and up, and actually frequently is sort of 30 or 40 years and older. Um, and then there's the education piece within existing like K through 12 education or college. So the college, I think we've contributed, we have this textbook, it's a resource, and we play around with how we visualize it and share it. Um, K through 12 is interesting. Um, there are a lot of very cheap, you know, one to five dollar apps that that teachers will use to make music engaging. So it's not something that we've spent too much time on. It's very visual. It requires a particular set of knowledge and skills. Um, and in terms of long term impact, it's hard to assess. Whereas we're thinking about uh, some, something's equivalent to Duolingo, if you've seen it, or Code Academy, Khan Academy, something which is for older students, but where it's much easier to measure our impact where how many people stick with it? If we have 20 lessons, do they complete all of them? Can we get them to post you know, videos or audio showing that they've learned a less, uh, an instrument? Because then we know we're investing in the right kinds of things. Do you listen to modern classical music at all? I personally do, sure. I guess, is there anything modern that you would you, you look forward to in 75 or 100 years becoming public domain? Uh, I think most people will, well, 75, who knows what music will look like then. It will probably be some virtual reality uh, pill that we consume. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, probably an easy one will be John Williams, which right now, anytime a classical radio station is fundraising, they play John Williams 24-7. So I think that's going to be a popular one to share out. Okay, Aaron Dunn, thank you very much. And uh, we'll be sure to keep an eye out for those Kickstarters. Terrific. It was great chatting. Thanks so much. Thank you. Next, we discuss text digitization.
I'm talking to Lyndon Hamilton, General Manager of Project Gutenberg Distributed Proofreaders. It's a site that rescues out-of-copyright texts and converts them to electronic formats that can be read on e-readers and computers. First, Linda, why is it this important, and what's the difference between one of your editions and, like, a PDF containing scans of the pages that you can download from Google Books or the Internet Archive? Uh, one of the main differences is that it's straight uh, uh, real text. Uh, the others are pictures of words, so that you can't really change the size of the text and or the color and the background and all of those sort of things to make them easier to read and do really good searches on the content because they're not words, they're just pictures. And uh, I've read sometimes PDF images of books where I can't get them any other way. And it's rather limited. In order to get them to the size where it's comfortable to read at times, I have to scroll back and forth across the page but I never have to do with that with uh, the books that we prepare, which can be formatted and you can copy text and, and do quotes and everything else because it's real, real words, not pictures. And, and I would assume that it's also a much smaller file as well, correct? Oh, definitely. And it can be uh, converted into several different formats. So if you have a really low-end system, you can bring it a straight, straight uh, low-end text, or you can uh, bring it in as HTML, like a web page, or as e-reader formats. And it's very easy to convert once we've done what we've done. What are what are some uh, notable texts that uh, distributed proofreaders has converted? Uh, we've done it's hard to tell because we've done thirty-seven thousand, almost. We're within a hundred of thirty-seven thousand. But just looking at the books that we've done over the last week, uh, things like Tea, It's Mystery and History, The Pavement Masters of Siena, Poems by uh, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, they're gorgeous, um, Common Sense for Housemaids, The French Revolution, they're, and we've done uh, a good portion of Shakespeare um, uh, and uh, Dickens and all of the classics, uh, Bible texts. It's uh, an amazing amount of uh, works. Uh, London and the London Poor is one, one major one that we've done. Sorry, I should mention Richard Burton's famous uh, books. Uh, we've done several of those. The, the Arabian Nights. Yes, in uh, Unexpurgated. Yes. Um, I, I, I mean, 37,000, that, that sounds like a large majority of the contents of Project Gutenberg. Is, is that correct? It's a, we're the largest per group that actually gives uh, works to Project Gutenberg, though uh, we're about 60 to 70 percent, I believe. How many volunteers do you have? On the books, we've got 100,000 or more. However, oh. uh, yes, um, but active, uh, it's about 1,200 to 1,500 in a month. But that doesn't mean that they're inactive if they're not on our site, uh, because some of them are working behind the scenes, uh, preparing a book uh, in early or later stages and uh, drop by when they're ready to submit it. What, are, what is the process if somebody wanted to volunteer for the site what do they have to do 
Well, they come into the uh, web page, uh, pgdp. Uh, 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 let's see, dot net. net. And uh, then they uh, um, there's a button where they can actually volunteer and give us uh, the information we need and read uh, our privacy guidelines and that, and then sign up. And then the first phase of being a volunteer is uh, the basic uh, proofing and smooth reading, correct? Yes, uh, you can do that uh, right off the bat once you start, though we do uh, push for people to at least read the basic guidelines for uh, proofreading, though the smooth readers can start right away with just reading the uh, information on the main smooth reading page. The difference is that the people that do uh, uh, the actual proofreading are actually looking at a copy of the text and the optical character recognition that the computer does its best guess at what that picture of the text is in real uh, words. And then they're comparing the two. But for smooth readers, they take a text that's been prepared already by our volunteers and they're doing one of the last checks of it uh, as a normal reader reading the text carefully. So they'll notice that Mrs. Havisham shouldn't be Mrs. Bavisham on page 31. And what happens after somebody has done that for a period of time, the, the basic proofreading or, or the smooth reading? They can move on to uh, more complex uh, levels. Like there are three levels of proofreading. So that the more skilled ones, people with a little bit more experience, move on to level two, which actually looks at the same pages that were done in level one and goes over them for any other errors that were missed by the beginners or the people who worked in that round. Then level three, you have to prove real skill and you're looking at them from the, the same pages that were done on the first uh, two levels. We hope to get rid of most of the proofing errors that way. Then it's looked at for two rounds of formatting, which is uh, we're looking for bolds and italics and um, uh, formatting the text uh, so that it's ready for the, uh, the pretty close to final stage of the post processors who are, are good with HTML and putting the, all of the single pages together because the way our volunteers work at it is a page at a time. So somebody might go in and proofread a page in one book and then say, oh, I'm tired of that book. I'll go and do another book and do two or three pages there. But the post-processor takes all of those separate pages, pulls them all together, takes a look at the images, cleans up any uh, scratches in them and, and straightens them up and uh, puts them in the right spot of the text, does all of the linking uh, from the table of contents to the right pages and that and actually does an HTML version and a text version that can uh, be ready to uh, send off to uh, Project Gutenberg. And then it goes to smooth readers uh, at that point um, when they're before they send to Project Gutenberg just to do a final check as a normal reader would. And what percentage of your uh, 100,000 volunteers are just initial readers? And uh, how, how many are more uh, of the higher levels? Uh, they're, they're more in the initial readers than uh, in the first and second stage of proofreaders uh, than they are in the uh, 
and the formatting level one than they are at the third level of uh, proofreading. We have, uh, I was doing some uh, statistics the other day, we have about uh, uh, 320 or so uh, people in the third level of proofreaders. And we have 124 in the second level of formatting. So uh, um, the majority are going to be in the earlier rounds. I see. And uh, there's also a special role called a project manager who actually picks the books and prepares them so that they can be proofread page by page, which is a major job. How does somebody get to uh, be a project manager and suggest hacks? Well, they actually uh, just need to have done some proofreading and formatting a certain number of pages and been on the site for a while. And they need to be good to a certain extent with computers because sometimes they're doing the optical character recognition computer work uh, themselves. And uh, they need to break often break apart the book into the pages. And then they need to be good with people to uh, be able to answer questions as the uh, uh, projects go through the rounds and figure out what should be the, um, the rules on certain odd parts of the books. What, what are some of the oddities that can be in books, uh, like math or foreign languages? How do you handle them? Well, we're international, and as far as the foreign languages, we have a lot of volunteers that are in Europe and other parts of the world. Um, so at any given time, people are working on the pages in multiple languages uh, all around the world. And, and what about math? Math has always been a problem. Uh, we still work with it, but um, we've used something called latex to convert the formulae. But having experts with the math has always been a challenge. We have done a number of math books, but uh, it's not as easy as our normal books. And some books are particularly hard because they're very, very old. And we also have handwritten books. Like uh, we've been working with uh, um, a project with um, um, where we get in ast astronomical observations that were put in notebooks, and people actually uh, look at the text at the top and convert it into regular uh, words. So it isn't all uh, um, actual typeset work that we do, and those are a challenge as well. Oh, cookbooks <laughs> too. Yeah. Sometimes the formatting and spelling text with all of the strange uh, diphthongs and things that you have to do on a spelling text, uh, it, it can be a challenge on certain types of books. Now, what do you do for spellings if there's a misspelling within the book or, or uh, alternate spellings? Well, most of our books are before uh, 1923 or at least 1923 because of the copyright, because we go with the American copyright rules. And uh, the rules for spelling, especially the older books, are, are quite diverse. So we ask our proofreaders to watch for something that they think might be an error and, uh, and do a note beside it so that uh, the post-processor can decide what to do. Some of them uh, correct and do uh, uh, proofers notes at the um, uh, uh, transcribers notes at the end of their text to say what's uh, been changed. 
are there any goals or or um, books that you look to acquire that you haven't done already or or big projects that you you, you guys are working towards? We do have big projects. There's a number of them, uh, and some are rather challenging, some big encyclopedias and things like that. Um, but mostly it's the project managers who decide, unless a com- um, an organization comes to us uh, and says, we, want, we would really like to work with you to transcribe certain text. At the moment, we're working with the Mundamium Museum in uh, Brussels to transcribe some of their works. And uh, they provide it. We double check that it's copyright free in the States and then we uh, put it through and it can be a big project. And we have a number of things like that on the go, but it's mostly up to the project manager. Uh, Some of them uh, decide, this is really exciting, I want to do this whole group of books. And uh, then we check whether they're already at Project Gutenberg, and then uh, that project manager manages it and puts it through the rounds and tries to put some rules so that they're done in a similar way by the uh, uh, proofers and post-processors and formatters. I'm sorry, you said the Museum Mundanium? Yes. Uh, what is that exactly? Uh, that's a museum in Brussels. And oh. it's it's doing a uh, uh, conference at the moment uh, that has some shows uh, to do with technology and, and words and text. What type of what type of uh, text do they uh, want converted? These were historical texts that were uh, that they had in picture format that they wanted to actually have transcribed, uh, mostly French. Oh, I see. Do you, do you find it's easy to get volunteers, uh, international volunteers, or is it easier to get the English speakers? English speakers are, are always a little bit more common, but a certain percentage of our books are done in different languages. Uh, the most common of our volunteers are German and French. But we also have a lot of uh, Spanish-speaking and Italian volunteers. But uh, it's more of a challenge uh, to get it all through the rounds quickly in if the language is one of those. Uh, but uh, it's really challenging if it's something like Polish or, or uh, Finnish, where we don't have many volunteers. So, so that would be uh, something uh, that I guess you would look forward in to in the project to get more volunteers from uh, uh, other languages. Yes, it's always nice to have them. But it's uh, I'm always keen to get more in the ones we already have a community for, because that makes it grow even more and more books, which I really look forward to. Is the rate at which you're putting out books increasing? Uh, it's. I don't believe it's really increasing. It's it stays about pretty um, pretty stable over the years. It's surprising because uh, we've been told that usually our volunteers drop off over the years on um, on internet volunteering. Um, some of the big organizations uh, have always complained about that, but we 
tend to keep a, a fairly stable base of uh, volunteers all working away. It doesn't seem to, at least, touch wood, change very much. And we've been going for uh, almost 19 years now. That's very impressive. I guess, is there anything uh, that you'd like the public to know about Project Gutenberg distributed proofreaders that I haven't asked you about? Well, one thing is that it's a community. Uh, it isn't just uh, proofreading books. Um, we have massive forums uh, where people discuss the books, and but also their interests. We have a knitters forum and uh, people discussing uh, um, issues of the day and uh, um, the books they've read and books they'd like to see and uh, things like that. It's people... Some people just come to proofread a few pages. Others stay to talk and also proofread and uh, format. Well, thank you very much, Linda Hamilton. It's been very informative. Uh, I hope people will go to your site and volunteer. That's pgdp.net. And thank you again for talking with me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for listening.